Welcome back to part two of our Come and See Inspirations podcast on the 7th of August. Um, that piece of music that just brought us back in was a traditional Irish Marian hymn stroke song. It's called Vera Vohar. Um, it's basically Mother Mary is what you you would translate that as for our non-Irish listeners. It's a very traditional um, Marian piece. And uh, the the interesting thing is when you're speaking about Mary Osquelga in Irish, uh, there's a specific word that's used to, for her. It's Mura. Whereas if you are Mary as a like a normal person, it's Marie uh, Mora Mora, 
so in but in Irish uh, the Blessed Virgin is her own particular version of the name which is Murda so it's an interesting one now the reason we bring that up of course is that for some strange reason myself and John decided we would do something about the assumption today and I kind of realised as we were starting to record this ooh we could have done this next week but anyway uh, but it's fine it's okay we're covering the assumption this week so the feast day uh, is um, celebrated on the 15th of August and it is generally seen as one of the bigger Catholic feasts around the world because even in such places as secular France it is still a big public holiday uh, despite the fact of course it is a Christian and particularly Catholic feast day. So we're talking about the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary so in particular what we're looking at here is a dogma that was defined by Pius the 12th. I also have to count the numbers folks bear with me. So it's one of the four Marian dogmas of the Catholic Church. John do you know what the other three are? going to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. No, no, we know you know them though you don't realize you know what they are. So the four Dabarian dogmas of the Catholic Church are Mary's Immaculate Conception, <clears throat> so that is Mary's own conception uh in the womb of Saint Anne. Then we have the perpetual the perpetual virginity of Mary during before and after the birth of her son. Uh, then there's the fact, there's the basic one, that she is the mother of God. She's Theotokos, which is defined at the Council of Ephesus. And the fourth one is the one that was defined in the 1950s, which is the Assumption of Mary. Now, the interesting thing about the, the dogma is that it's um, it was declared in 1950 in the Marian year by Pius XII. And he was issued it under the Apostolic Constitution. I'm not even going to pronounce it. It's Mun... Munificentiumus Deus, I think is how it's pronounced. Uh, my Latin is extremely rusty and non-existent. Where basically he said, we proclaim and define it as dogma revealed by God that the Immaculate Mother of God, Mary ever Virgin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into the glory of heaven. And, okay, there's a couple of things about it, I suppose, just to, that we can peruse and go through. So I suppose the first thing is it, it builds upon the logic of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which was declared in 1854, which declared that Mary was conceived free from original sin. And both of those, of course, obviously arise from the concept of Mary as the mother of God. Now, basically, the logic is Mary's Immaculate Conception um derives from the fact that she is the mother of God. So that God, Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, uh, was born in a, you know, in a human, I hate the term vessel, but that's the term that's used, uh, that was full of grace, as as was set out by Gabriel when he, he greeted Mary in the Gospel of St. Luke. So, um, so it's a follow-on from that then, that obviously if Mary was full of grace, immaculately conceived, she was the mother of God, that then at the end of her natural, as it says, at the end of her normal earthly life, she was able to enjoy the benefits of her son's salvation of all humanity. Now, the interesting thing about it is it leaves open the question of whether Mary died or not. Um, And it doesn't actually say yay or nay, because what the wording actually says is uh, when the course of her earthly life was finished, so um, it's a matter of interpretation how you actually go with that one. And I'll come back to that in a while. Um, there's a similar kind of or equivalent belief, but it's not held as a dogma in the Orthodox churches. And it's known as the Dormition of Mary, of the Mother of God, or the Falling Asleep of the Mother of God. And it's also celebrated on August the 15th. Very much associated, of course, with the uh, the church of that name in Jerusalem, the Dormition, uh, the Dormition Basilica. Uh, where uh, there is a 
an amazing um, effigy of an older Mary, um, basically on her in her in her in her coffin, to all intents and purposes. It's quite interesting, actually, when you see it. Also, um, there is an interesting uh, tradition in the Orthodox Church. So, for anyone that has been to Jerusalem and you have visited the Mount of Olives, if you have come down the Mount of Olives, walking and heading as if you're heading into Jerusalem, you will have passed the Church of the Grave of Mary. Um, it's an Orthodox church, and obviously, from a Catholic point of view, um, well, we don't kind of go with it, so to speak. You know, the dogma is that she was taken up body and soul into heaven, so she ain't there. The tomb is empty. Um, you know, so that that's that's kind of where it comes from. Now, it's interesting, John. Just to go back a second, when we talk about those dogmas, what does a dogma mean? So, a dogma is something that is set out as a keystone of the faith and that we are required as Catholics to believe it. So it's up there like dogmas are like, you know, the Trinity, that Jesus was, true God and true man, all that kind of thing. So we have four Marian dogmas. Now, the difference between a dogma, say, and something like, for example, the apparitions at Knock or the apparitions in, in, in Lourdes or Fatima, those are regarded as private revelations that the church has given its blessing to. But as a Catholic, you are not required to believe that Our Lady appeared at Fatima. As a Catholic, you are not required to believe in the messages of Fatima or even in the messages of Divine Mercy or whatever it is. You know, they are part of the, the faith. They are popular devotion, which has received the Church's blessing. But as a Catholic, you are required to believe in the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I didn't know that. I didn't know that... Because I would assume, I say, probably like most Catholics, if a, if an apparition has been approved, like like, mm-hmm. like Fatima, mm-hmm. they'd have to believe it. No, you don't. So um, okay. now most Catholics do. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you don't actually. It's it's not required. It's not one of the things. You know, when you turn up at the pearly gates and Saint Peter I, rolls I, I, out I, the note and he says, "Right, do you believe in this and this and this yeah, and this?" On the list is not going to be. Do you believe his mother <laughs> appeared at Fatima? Let me put it to you that way. Good day, thank you. You know, Good. yeah. So that's it's an interesting one. You know, so I suppose in terms of the the the, the, the development of the the dogma, one thing I suppose that we sometimes get pulled up on as Catholics is asking, uh, particularly by our Protestant brethren, is where is it in Scripture? Technically, it's not. And it's interesting because actually the gospel for the Mass of the day of the Assumption is actually the visitation. So um, it is a bit, it is one of those ones which is kind of, from a theological and scriptural point of view, very much relies on the tradition of how we interpret Scripture. And in particular, uh, how we interpret um, the Book of Revelation in, in particular, and uh, in 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 after the proclamation of the dogma, the the guy that advised the Pope, he was a guy called Father Yugi. He expressed the view that Revelation twelve one to two was the chief chief scriptural witness to the assumption, and that is a great sign appeared in heaven: a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child. So it's just that's an interesting one. They also, um, you know, so there's there's a number of others as well. If you if you if people want to look it up, you can go into it um, on in the catechism, for example. Um, but going back to the fact, going back to the thing about whether she died or not, John, that's an interesting one, right? Because um, it the the, the 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 definition is set up by Pius the Twelfth leaves open the question of whether she died before her assumption or not. Um, the assumption is said to have been a divine gift to her as the mother of God, right? And most 
I suppose most of the early theologians and the fathers and mothers of the church generally accepted that she probably died. And in tradition, the tradition, the artistic tradition, if you look to what popular piety holds up, particularly in the Eastern Church, if you see icons of the Dormition of Our Lady, what you will generally see is Our Lady lying on a bed and surrounded by the Twelve Apostles, or well, eleven plus one. Uh, because tradition holds that they were brought from all the different parts of the world to where she was as she lay dying. And and they they witnessed her dormition. They're falling asleep in, in into death. But of course, she was not subject to the decay of the grave. Um, you know, it's it's for Mary, I suppose, that one of the arguments is death is a consequence uh, or her lack or, you know, in consequence of her freedom from original sin and from personal sin. You know, it wasn't that she was subject to um, the decay of the grave. That's how it's understood. That's how it's that's how it's worded. Um, so you know, um, but it's 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 one of those ones you can sit on the fence. Um, you know, you, many Catholics believe she did not die at all, but was assumed directly into heaven. Um, but it's open. It's open to interpretation. So it's whatever way you want to look at it. Um, the other side of it, as I said, is the thing that it's it's. Um, we the, the Orthodox Church has the Dormition, and it's a beautiful uh, tradition that they have as well. It's not so much dogmatically defined by the Orthodox churches, because there are so many of them, but it's rather how it's celebrated in their liturgies, um, and more than anything else, how they, 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 they set it out and how they mark it. Um, it's, we all celebrate it on the 15th of August. And uh, but in the east, in the Eastern Church now, this will put it up to you, John. There is a fourteen-day fast period beforehand. Now, Orthodox, the Orthodox community, they do an awful lot more fasts than we do. Like, and I, when I say fast, I mean the real fast. It's not like, oh, I'm giving up meat on a Friday job. That's a bit like a halfpenny job, like like a hail mary pass. Now, this is like you know, no meat for fourteen days. You cut back on the food, you cut back on the carbs, you offer up a few extra prayers. It's the real McCoy. Yeah, Catholics, to be perfectly honest, since the Vatican Council, Catholics have really escaped when it comes to the understanding of fast and abstinence. Mm -hmm. We have it two days a year, folks. It's Good Friday and Ash Wednesday. And it's just like, seriously? (laughs) Compared Compared to our brethren in the Orthodox Church who kind of spent kind of most like half the year in fasts, like they've won for Christmas, they've won for Assumption, they've won for Pentecost, they've won, obviously, they've glint. Uh, then if you go outside the Christian faith and you look to our, our neighbors in Islam, where they have Ramadan, which is like 30 days, and that's like serious, no food, no water, passes your lips while the sun is up. You know, so it's it's kind of one of those ones we should think about a bit more. Would it, you know, would that in, indicate that we've lost that little bit of, I wouldn't say reverence, right, but a little, even belief in it to a certain extent in our family. There's, yeah, you could say that, I suppose. I, but you see, the other side of it, John, is with a lot of things in our tradition is we went to extremes on us. Yeah. You know, and the problem is then the extreme has come back the other way where it's come almost like the baby's been thrown out with yeah, the bathwater. Yeah. Um, in an Irish context, it's a, it's a genuinely serious question because the, the Church of the Celtic Saints, so the Church of St. Mm. Patrick, mm. they were very strong believers in the power and efficiency of a fast. Uh, and 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 numerous accounts of the saints have them fasting against you know pagan princes to to bring mm. them around to a particular point of view, so it's 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 something I suppose to, you know to, to that form of asceticism 
is something that maybe we should explore again. You know, I'm not saying you kind of, you know, it's not exactly sackcloth and ashes, but it's it's also, it's an interesting thing how we have lost that tradition within the faith community, whereas the broader society has picked it up. Yeah. Like if you talk about the keto diet or this intermittent yeah. fasting diet, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's just, it's an interesting one, you know, from that point of view well, we as well. we just lost the focus into why we do it. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's the same as, as a fast before receiving Holy Communion. Exactly. Like, that's a minimum of an hour. Minimum, folks. Minimum. You well, know, I mean, you know, in all fairness. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, back to mm-hmm. the Feast of the Assumption. Mm-hmm. We slightly detoured there. So back, we were talking about the Dermission, so which is the Eastern Orthodox equivalent. And they believe that Mary died a natural death, that her soul was received by Christ upon death, and that her body was resurrected on the third day after her death and that she was taken up to heaven in anticipation of the general resurrection. Now, it's an interesting one. Um, so if you're looking at iconography, sometimes what you will see is, as I said, the general iconography is Mary lying on a bed or a beer, a bar, beer? B-I-E-R? B-I-E-R. Yeah, yeah, that one. Uh, surrounded by the apostles. And then you will see in the background, you will see an image of her son, uh, Jesus, and he's in you know enthroned in majesty in heaven. And he might be holding a tiny, tiny version of Mary. And the way that's generally interpreted is he's holding her soul and waiting for her okay. for her assumption to reunite it all together. Um, mixed mixed views in terms of our Protestant neighbours on this one. Um, the the it's not held as something that's kind of held as central to to their beliefs. But the feast day of Mary on the fifteenth of August is celebrated by the Church of England. Um, it's also marked by the Scottish Episcopal Church and by the U.S. Episcopal Church. So it's just an interesting one as well. Um, The other thing about it, of course, is that um, it's also very much associated with public holidays. So for our neighbours and listeners on the continent, particularly in Europe, it is a big feast day in terms of public holidays. Like the month of August, pretty much France shuts down. Um, Italy pretty much does the same. Mm. And the high point of the month is the 15th. That's kind of the day that points it out. Um, there's also different, I suppose, traditionals know, known with it um, and different things associated with it. So, for example, in my home parish, uh, the 15th of August happens to be our our, um, our patron day mm-hmm. uh, at a local holy well. So it's there. People go to the well to make the rounds and to and to to those mass generally said there as well. So it's it's just it's just an interesting one, I suppose. John, the question is, well, what does it mean for me at the end of the day? For you know, what's the point of it? It's mm-hmm. fine. You've talked about the dogma and the history and blah 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 blah. So how does it all fit back to me and kind of like the whole point, I suppose, of the assumption is that it's a reminder to us of hope and the promise that is made to us. Mary has gone, and where we are going to follow basically, is how you'd sum it up. Because she is like us, um, fully human, uh, suffered in life, mm-hmm. suffered a lot in life, saw her own child die, if you think about it, a most gruesome death. And where she has gone, we hope that that is the promise that is held out to us. She is now enjoying the resurrection of the body as a gift because of her yes to God when she was asked by the angel Gabriel. And that is the hope that is given for each and one, each one of us that calls ourselves Christian and are bound into the body of Christ. That ultimately, at the end, that we too will share in that um, that promise that is made to us all. Um, the other thing I suppose to remember as well that it's you know it's 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 also about 
in one sense, the mystery of 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 Jesus himself. And it's an event of love. You know, um, it's 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 generally, I suppose, um, looking at Mary's ardent longing to be with her son. Um, you know, and it's it's a joyful. It's generally in art. It's generally shown as a joyful reunion with with Jesus. Um, but also, it's it's uh, an interesting one in terms of just reminding us again that. Uh, it is that promise, it is that hope more than anything else that we celebrate on the Feast of the Assumption. So for those of you that might be unable to meet the, um, to, go, to go to Mass, so in Ireland it is actually uh, still regarded, I'm just going to double check that, but as far as I know it's still regarded as one of the Holy Days of Obligation. Uh, just let me double check the order, John. Um, so for those of you that can't make it to Mass on the day, you could also, you could always just pray the, um, what is it, the Fort? Um, glorious mystery mm-hmm, yeah. which is the assumption of our blessed yeah. lady yes it's a solemnity in Ireland on the day and as far as I'm aware it is one of the few days still left on the calendar which is a holy day of obligation I'm just looking to check the list here just bear me one second so um, John what about have you any thoughts on it just a thought now that came to me maybe you've already answered this question mm-hmm. for me um, this dogma um, came about in 1950 mm. Why did it take so long uh, with the church? Yeah, it was one of those ones <clears throat> that kind of... Now, I suppose the first thing I should say is it's one of the only two dogmas that have been declared ex cathedra and using papal infallibility, which is another interesting thing. Um, it was one of those ones that came up because of the Marian year and the bishops had asked the Pope to kind of set it out. So it wasn't exactly something that Pius XII pulled out of his own head. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a huge degree of consultation with the with the episcopacy, episcopacy on it. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of research that was done in terms of what was the teachings of the saints back over the years. And in particular, St. Bonaventure came into this as well. Now, Bonaventure, we'd mentioned him previously in terms of the um, Immaculate Conception. Um, but it was, all, it was also, I think it was just more timing than anything else, John. And... Um, because you know, I mean, so, you know, some people can say, "Well, yes. well, how, how come that? How come that wasn't a thousand years before, uh, fifteen hundred years before?" Uh, well, it, I suppose the declaration of the dogma is taking the view; it is setting out this is what we believe, but it's not necessarily saying that it's new. It's saying that this has been the tradition and the belief of the church all down through the centuries, but we are formally inscribing it mm-hmm. on the, the, you know, the the, 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 the writing, if you like. The, like, it wasn't, the, Pius didn't set it out as it was a new dogma. He was basically saying he is setting out what has been the belief of the church down through the centuries and just formally defining it more than anything else. Okay. Um, so that was that was the logic behind it in, in 1950. Yes, just to confirm for Irish people, uh, the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary on the 15th of August is a holy day of obligation. Uh, so you are actually required to go to chapel. Um, so for the rest of the world, probably not, uh, but just depend. It's something you would need to check in your local diocese. So that's what we have, John, in terms of our, our reflections and thoughts on the forthcoming Feast of the Assumption. So now at the end of that, we are going to have two pieces of music, not one, but two pieces of music for our listeners. Uh, the first is going to be an Ave Maria, and it is uh, Schubert's Ave Maria, sung, of course, by Andrea Bocelli. And then, uh, sorry, before that, we are going to have the, the Tese Magnificat. Okay. Uh, sorry, apologies. Tese Magnificat first, and then to close out part two of the podcast, we are going to have Schubert's Ave Maria, sung by Andrea Bocelli. 